This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the Book of Numbers. Welcome Welcome to the club. Chapter 32 was the story of two and a half of the tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, who decided that close to the promised land was good enough for them. They settled for less than God's promise for them, and that choice plays out in the future just like it will when we make those same kind of choices in our lives. Moses reacted, as would be expected for one who wanted desperately to see the promised land and isn't able to. He was frustrated. He was angry. And then in chapter 33, it was a review of the stages of Israel's journey in three stages. First, from Egypt to the desert of Sinai, then from Sinai to Kadesh, and finally Kadesh to Moab, where the Israelites are now camped right across the Jordan from Jericho, right across from the promised land. Right. So that chapter 33, the stages of Israel's journey is closely tied to the next three chapters, the last three chapters of Numbers. Yes, this episode is the end of season four of the Bible Book Club. You made it. You made it. After listening to this episode, you can check the Book of Numbers off your list of books to read. Now, an outline of these four chapters together, 33 from last week and the three remaining, would read like this, and this is why they're tied together. First, God reviews where have they been on their journey to get where they are now on the brink of inhabiting the promised land. Then he preps them for how to live going forward in the land, including how to divide the land among the people, where the Levites are to live, cities that are to be a refuge for those committing murder, and lastly, one more rule for those Zelophehad daughters. First, the distribution of the promised land. Chapter 34 is the boundaries of the land for the individual tribes. Moses provides the dimensions of this enormous gift from God to Israel. This decree would have been read aloud as a form of worship. They are praising God for this gift in this moment. It was the promise made real. For if God decreed it here, it would indeed happen. Chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites and say to them, when you enter Canaan, the land that will be allotted to you as an inheritance is to have these boundaries. Your southern side will include some of the desert of Zin along the border of Edom. Your southern boundary will start in the east from the southern end of the Dead Sea. Cross south the Scorpion Pass, continue on to Zin and go south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it will go to Hazar Adar, over to Asmon, where it will turn, join the Wadi of Egypt, and end at the Mediterranean Sea. Your western boundary will be the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This will be your boundary on the west. For your northern boundary, run a line from the Mediterranean Sea to Mount Hor and from Mount Hor to Lebo Hamath. Then the boundary will go to Zedad, continue to Ziphron, and end at Hazar Enon. This will be your boundary to the north. For your eastern boundary, run a line from Hazar Enon to Shephan. The boundary will go down from Shephem to Riblah on the east side of Enin and continue along the slopes of the Sea of Galilee. Then the boundary will go down along the Jordan and end at the Dead Sea. This will be your land with its boundaries on every side. Wouldn't it be nice if God would just define all our boundaries so so It would be really nice. Unfortunately for us, some of these places are unknown. And so this exact, the exact boundaries is a little fake. And I'm not going to put a map in yet because we will put a map 
of the tribes. This is just the outline right now, but we're going to get divisions for the tribes. But don't you think it's fake to us today, but they knew exactly what Oh, they knew exactly them. where all these places. Remember, they had sent spies to scout out the land. And so they did have probably a map drawn of just how big this territory is. God begins in the south, the area most familiar to them. Remember, they spent some time in Kadesh, which is in the south. So that was what they would have most mapped out. Kadesh will be the southernmost point of their territory. The Mediterranean is that border on the west. Pretty easy to follow that. Edom will be the border on the east in the south. Then moving north, the land extends and the area that they will um, occupy actually grows wider. It runs up the Jordan River and beyond the Sea of Galilee. The tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half of Manasseh will live to the east of this eastern border outside of the promised land. Sadly, at no point in Israel's history did they possess the full promise of the land. David fought hard to obey God and take possession of the land, and he came the closest. He gained control of most of Canaan and the Transjordan, which is that area where those two and a half tribes lived on the other side of the Jordan River. But he did not gain control of all of Canaan. And is that just because of their disobedience that they never actually get to see the promise that God gave them? They always just fell short of that. And we're going to get to that point again today that he warned them of at the end of chapter 33. So this warning was very prophetic. All right. In this next section, God gives the distribution of the land by tribe. Verse 13, Moses commanded the Israelites, assign this land by lot as an inheritance. The Lord has ordered that it be given to the nine and a half tribes because the families of the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance. These two and a half tribes have received their inheritance east of the Jordan, across from Jericho, toward the sunrise. The Lord said to Moses, these are the names of the men who are to assign the land for you as an inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Joshua son of Nun, and appoint one leader from each tribe to help assign the land. These are their names, Caleb son of Jephunneh from the tribe of Judah, Shemel son of Amahud from the tribe of Simeon, Eladad son of Kilson from the tribe of Benjamin, Buki son of Jogi, the leader of the tribe of Dan. Haniel, son of Ephod, the leader of the tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph. Kamiel, son of Siphthan, the leader of the tribe of Ephraim, son of Joseph. Elzaphan, son of Parnak, the leader of the tribe of Zebulun. Patiel, son of Azan, the leader of the tribe of Ishkar. Ahudad, son of Shalomi, the leader of the tribe of Asher. Paldel, son of Amahud, the leader of the tribe of Naphtali. These are the men the Lord commanded to assign the inheritance to the Israelites in the land of Canaan. There are 10 leaders listed here because remember, two of the tribes already claimed land outside the promise, settling for what they think is best for them rather than what God knows is best for them. The list begins with Caleb, the only man other than Moses and Joshua from the generation that came out of Egypt. Caleb is also, along with Joshua, the only man who has actually been to the promised land 
and is familiar with the territory as he was one of the spies sent out in Numbers 13, Episode 7 of Season 4. Note also that Caleb is from the tribe of Judah, the tribe from that son of Jacob and Leah's that will be the most faithful and produce the promised seed, the Son of Man and the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, Christ was born in Bethlehem, located in Judah's territory, just south of Jerusalem, where the temple was located and where Christ died on the cross, which is in Benjamin's territory. It is cool to me that one of Rachel's sons, Benjamin, and one of Leah's sons, Judah, played so prominently in the story of the 12 tribes from the 12 sons of Jacob. The story of the sister wives of Jacob and their sons is in Genesis 29 and 30, season one, episode 25. So we are covering a lot of history here. I hope you've been with us the whole time. Rules for the tribes are almost always followed by rules for the Levites, and our orderly book of Numbers does not disappoint us. Chapter 35 is the rules for the towns that are for the Levites. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to give the Levites towns to live in from the inheritance the Israelites will possess and give them pasture lands around the towns. Then they will have towns to live in and pasture lands for the cattle they own and all other animals. The pasture lands around the towns that you give the Levites will extend a thousand cubits from the town wall. Outside the town measure 2,000 cubits on the east side, 2,000 on the south side, 2,000 on the west, and 2,000 on the north, with the town in the center. They will have this area as pasture land for the towns. All right, so let's review where we are in the distribution of land between the tribes and the Levites. God has laid out the distribution first of the land by each tribe. Then within each tribe, certain cities were located for the Levites to live. The Levites were to be a presence among the tribes, providing holy leadership and service to the people scattered throughout Canaan. This fulfilled the prophecy made by Jacob in Genesis 49, hundreds of years earlier, when he said this about Levi's descendants, I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. The Levites are also given a little bit of land around each city because remember, the Israelites have to um, tithe animals And the animals are given to the Levites to live on. So they do have little herds and need pasture land to feed them and feed themselves. There will be 48 total towns for the Levites to live in scattered throughout the land. But six of those cities will be special. They will be cities of refuge, a curious but effective bit of legislation specifically for murder. Murder was abhorrent to God for several reasons. First, the promised land was a holy land. We learned in Leviticus that blood is a purifier, atoning for sin. Blood, however, can also have the opposite effect when it is tied to sin, because then blood, as in the case of murder, pollutes the land. So it can be a purifier or a pollutant. Since a holy God cannot reside in a polluted environment, see Leviticus season three to really understand the concept of purity and pollution in the tabernacle and in the land or camp as it was at the time in Leviticus. But for God to reside there, Israel must take care 
to preserve the purity of the promised land by dealing with the shedding of blood or murder. Another reason murder is a direct offense to God was that man was created in the image of God. Genesis 9, 6 says this, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Every person is sacred, bearing the image of God. Therefore, to kill a person is an act against God. And having taken a life, the killer then loses their own right to life. Life was so valuable that there was no other way to pay for the crime but by taking that life. The community enforced this death penalty, and a family member of the victim, the person killed, which is called the avenger, was responsible for pursuing the killer and putting him to death, which is crazy. This law was harsh, but this was a country without prisons or police, so somebody had to avenge the death of the victims. However, we will read that the accused, the murderers, were protected and the proof of murder was much more stringent than the proof we demand today. So that death penalty only would have been enacted when there was beyond reasonable doubt. It like cast out. We'll see. Additionally, mercy was often extended despite the sin, as in the cases of Moses himself, who murdered an Egyptian way back in Exodus 2. And David, who placed Uriah on the front lines of battle so he could have his wife Bathsheba. How about Cain, who killed his brother and then lived on? But in the case of David and Cain, there were very tragic consequences that followed them. The bottom line is that the Bible presents both cases, mercy and justice, a second chance for some or the ultimate consequence for others. Now, to protect the accused from hasty, rash avengers, God provided a law to shelter the accused murderer by creating cities throughout the land, those cities of refuge. The six cities were places of refuge where the accused murderer could live safely until they could appear before the elders and plead their case. So it was kind of like a protection from somebody just in a in a fit of rage thinking somebody killed somebody and maybe they hadn't. Right. Going and just avenging the death. Right. Yeah. And we're going to get into unintentional death too. Yes. All right. Verse six. Six of the towns you give the Levites will be cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone may flee. In addition, give them 42 other towns. In all, you must give the Levites 48 towns together with their pasture lands. The towns you give the Levites from the land the Israelites possess are to be given in proportion to the inheritance of each tribe. Take many towns from a tribe that has many, but few from one that has few. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from the avenger so that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial before the assembly. These six towns you give will be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan and three in Canaan as cities of refuge. These six towns will be places of refuge for the Israelites and for foreigners residing among them so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. So really it's only accidentally. Yeah, but anyone who kills is 
is going to claim they did it accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to flee. Anyone who emerges is going to flee and hope that there weren't enough witnesses probably to convict. So yes, but he did intend it just because you'll see it's automatic death penalty for anyone who does it intentionally. Now, God is going to make one more murder distinction. There is a difference between how the Israelites will treat intentional murder versus unintentional murder. First, the rules for intentional murder. Verse 16. If anyone strikes someone a fatal blow with an iron object, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. Or if anyone is holding a stone and strikes someone a fatal blow with it, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. Or if anyone is holding a wooden object and strikes someone a fatal blow with it, that person is a murderer and the murderer is to be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. When the avenger comes upon the murderer, the avenger shall put the murderer to death. If anyone with malice of forethought shoves another or throws something at them intentionally so that they die, or out of enmity, one person hits another with their fist so that the other dies, that person is to be put to death. That person is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when they meet. So the avenger of blood is to kill any murderer who did so intentionally. And it does mention a forethought there, but even if it's impulsive anger, they considered that a forethought. Your intention was to hurt somebody else. Therefore, it was intentional. Here are the rules for unintentional murder. Verse 22. But if without enmity, someone suddenly pushes another or throws something at them unintentionally, or without seeing them, drops on them a stone heavy enough to kill them and they die, then since that other person was not an enemy and no harm was intended, the assembly must judge between the accused and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send the accused back to the city of refuge to which they fled. The accused must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge to which they fled and the avenger of blood finds them outside the city, the avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. The accused must stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may they return to their own property. So there, there's some cool reasoning here. If the murder was unintentional, an accident, the accused is to flee to a refuge city and await judgment. It appears that judgment is made in the city where the death occurred. If found guilty of intentional murder, the guilty would be handed over to the blood avenger, who, of course, probably lived in that city, too. If found guilty of unintentional murder, the accused is sent back to the refuge city until the death of the high priest. Why? Why until the high priest dies? This is interesting. If the avenger is not allowed to kill the murderer, then there is no atonement for the sin of the murder, the bloodshed. There must be atonement for the bloodshed of the victim. Someone else must atone for the sin of killing. That person is the high priest. So kind of like the Jubilee year, when a high priest dies, anyone who has unintentionally murdered someone is set free to go home and the avenger cannot kill them or then the avenger is guilty of murder. And that's why it said there, if they leave the city of refuge before the high priest dies, well, then then they're not protected. It is almost as if even though they unintentionally killed someone, they do have to pay a consequence. They cannot live in with their family 
for years if the high priest lives a long life or he's young when he became the high priest. But again, that kind of puts the burden on the people to be careful with what they do. So the six cities of refuge were just like the other 42 cities. They're cities set aside for the Levites to minister to the people. They just spread six of them out, three on either side of the Jordan, to be a protective place. But I'm sure those people were given a little place to live and they were put to work in some way, probably in the pastures or something until they were freed. Well, isn't it kind of like they built um, basically churches or temples at that time, right? They called them in those areas and the person would have to flee into the temple and then the priest would kind of protect them. I don't think they had temples. There was only one place and only the high priest could sacrifice animals. And that was either in the tabernacle before the temple was built or in the temple. But they did, They the Levites, so remember, these are Levites. They're not necessarily priests living in these towns. Oh, that darn rule about all yes. priests are Levites, but not yes. all Levites yes. are priests. So these are Levites who, again, I'm sure are making sure they observe the holidays, you know, uh, and making sure that they're keeping the Sabbath and things like that. But they're, they're not, it doesn't say they're priests. Because remember, the priests only come from one family. There's only so many of them. So I under, oh, only from the Levites. So I, I understand that the priests had to do the sacrifice, which is the avenging for the death. But why would the priest, why would the priest dying have anything to do with that? Because couldn't they just pick another priest who would then do so the sacrifice? So glad you asked this because this is, the fir- is one of the first examples of giving a picture of Christ, the high priest, dying to atone for our sin. Mm. So the high priest in this case is atoning for the bloodshed the whether accident the accidental bloodshed of, of these people there's nothing else atoning for it because these people are being allowed to continue to live and so the high priest is dying for all of them we don't know how many there would have been in these cities of refuge but accident you know they were they were very much an a- agrarian society so i'm sure people died accidentally sometimes you know they're doing hard labor i think there would be a lot of relying on your own convictions to follow this rule because the person would stay in the city of refuge because they knew if they went outside of it that they would be killed by the avenger but the avenger would have to be convicted to follow this rule because what would keep the avenger from just going and killing that person anyway because why do they care well as believers blood and murder are like abhorrent to them so it would be more out of fear for their own retribution if they went and killed somebody unlawfully. well because then they become a murderer they become a murderer and And then they have to yeah or they get just put to death but it was interesting to read about how the burden was put on the family to avenge so it's very family centric clan centric they take care of each other Um, and we see that even as we get on into things like Ruth and the kinsman redeemer and everything that you know the family stuck together and they stayed in that land forever. This is your clan's land. You're going to be there forever. And so there was a certain respect for your neighbors and and their kids and they're all related. Next, we have rules for determining guilt. These are the stringent rules for convicting a murder. Verse 29, this is to have the force of law for you throughout the generations to come wherever you live. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Do not accept Accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. They are to be put to death. Do not accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge. 
and so allow them to go back and live on their own land before the death of the high priest. Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. There you go, that kind of description of this being a holy land. So to be declared guilty, there had to be at a minimum two witnesses. No witnesses, no guilt. The the person is set free. If unintentionally guilty of murder, there is no other ransom the murderer can pay. So like if the murderer wants to go to the family, go, hey, I'll give you three bulls, five sheep, you know, because no, you can't do that. Because remember, we had all those laws before that if they destroyed property or whatever, there was a way to pay for that. You can't if you murder a person. But it's really kind of messed up because then if you wanted to get away with murder, all you'd have to do is make sure no one saw you. True. But remember, this is a theocracy. These people all believe in God and they care for each other and they live amongst their families. So if you're that bad, your family is going to ferret it out long before you start murdering, probably. Um, Family pressure. It was probably family pressure. The high priest is the only one who can pay with his own death for the unintentional murders. Just as there is no ransom we can pay for our sin, Jesus had to pay for it with his own death. And that's where we get that kind of foreshadowing of Jesus's blood covering our sin. Bloodshed pollutes the land and the land can only be cleansed with the blood of the one who shed it. Moving on to our final chapter, 36. By this point now, every tribe and clan has their allotted land and everyone understands the rules. It seems as if we are ready to go and get to the business of invading and setting up house in the promised land. But remember those courageous daughters of Zelephahad just nine chapters ago? Well, their tribe leaders have a concern. What if Z's girls marry outside our clan? Then our clan would lose land and their clan would gain land. So now we have one more rule for the inheritance of Zelephahad's daughters. Chapter 36. The family heads of the clan of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, who were from the clans of the descendants of Joseph, came and spoke before Moses and the leaders, the heads of the Israelites' families. They said, When the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land as an inheritance to the Israelites by lot, he ordered you to give the inheritance of your brother Zelephahad to his daughters. Now, suppose they marry men from other Israelite tribes, then their inheritance will be taken from our ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe they marry into. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us will be taken away. When the year of Jubilee for the Israelites comes, their inheritance will be added to that of the tribe into which they marry, and their property will be taken from the tribal inheritance of our ancestors. Then at the Lord's command, Moses gave this order to the Israelites. What the tribe of the descendants of Joseph is saying is right. This is what the Lord commands for Zelephahad's daughters. They may marry anyone they please as long as they marry within their father's tribal clan. No inheritance in Israel is to pass from one tribe to another, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal inheritance of their ancestors. Every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone in their father's tribal clan, so that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of their ancestors. No inheritance may pass from one tribe to another, for each Israelite tribe is to keep the land it inherits. So, Zelophehad's daughters did as the Lord commanded Moses. Zelophehad's daughters, Milah, Tirzah, Holgah, Milcah, and Noah 
married their cousins on their father's side. They married within the clans of the descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in their father's tribe and clan. Long story short on all that, the girls get a smaller husband pool. No fishing for a spouse outside the tribal clan. Got to keep the land in the original plan for the clan. Is that because (laughs) they were complaining about it? So he's like, okay, I'll give you what you're asking for, but it's going to get harder on you. No, it, it really made sense because again, you know, God said these clans get this, these tribes get this much land. And remember, he gave the more faithful tribes more land. So um, it makes sense that let's say you lived, these girls were from the tribe of Manasseh, and I think they were from the right side of the Jordan, not the wrong side of the Jordan. But let's say they had land right in the middle of that territory. And then they marry someone from the tribe of Judah. Then all of a sudden, somebody from the tribe of Judah owns land in the middle of Manasseh's tribe. And there was strength in being a tribe. They were all related. They cared for each other. There was, you know, community there. And so it just didn't make sense that they should marry outside of their tribe. But then why wouldn't this rule apply to any tribe? It Because it, if a daughter marries outside her tribe and she doesn't have the inheritance of land, she then becomes part of her husband's oh, tribe. Oh, this was the only tribe where the daughters were allowed. I remember they asked about well, that. Well, I'm sure there were other daughters to other men who didn't have sons and the daughters inherited, but these are the ones that came forward and the law was created because of them. And then their leaders were dealing with this problem. What if she marries, you know, somebody from the tribe way over there? And then we got this problem. Verse 13, these are the commands and regulations the Lord gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And there we have it. We are at the end of numbers, but an end it is not. For Moses is not quite done. The book of Numbers is the story of how God faithfully led Israel through the wilderness despite their rebellion. It is the story of the relationship between the Israelites and God, a story that very much resembles a courtship and a wedding and a marriage. In Genesis and Exodus, there was a courtship. God chose and pursued the Israelites in love and explains his intent to dwell among them only. Then in Leviticus, there was a wedding. God laid out the plans for how they will live together and what they had to do so he could dwell in their midst in the tabernacle. In Numbers, the wedding ended and the marriage began. The Israelites' relationship with God was tested, and the first generation of Israelites failed, spending almost 40 years in the wilderness. But God is giving this covenant marriage a second chance with the new generation of Israelites. And here we are, poised on the edge of that chance. In these last three chapters, 34, 35, and 36, Moses allocated the land, but only after that huge warning in our last episode, God is sending a message to the Israelites. The land is yours, but, but everything, the relationship with God and attaining the promised land hinges on that warning at the end of chapter 33, where God gave very simple and very specific instructions to this new generation of Israelites on what to do when they inherited the land. They were commanded to drive out all inhabitants of Canaan, destroy all images and idols, and demolish all high places. Then they were to take possession of the land and distribute the land by tribe and size of clan. 
Moses closed his message with this prophetic warning from God that was really the climax of this book. He said, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live, and then I will do to you what I planned to do to them." God's message is super clear. The land is yours, Israel. You've arrived. Now what? Here is your chance, Israel, for prosperity and joy. Be faithful and do not disobey as your fathers and mothers did. You are responsible for your choices. If you choose to obey, you will be blessed. If you choose to disobey, the consequences are very clear. He said, I will do to you what I plan to do to the people of Canaan. God is like every good parent. He wants the world for his children, Israel, if only they would want it to. Deuteronomy, our next book, is the beginning of a new chapter for the relationship between God and his people. It is also the end of Moses' story, and it is the last book in the Torah or Pentateuch. At the end of this next season, season five, if you have been with the Bible Book Club from the beginning in season one, you will have read and discussed one-fifth of the entire Bible. And so just like God has said to the Israelites, you've arrived, now what? We say to you, Bible Book Club listeners, you've arrived at the end of Numbers. Now what? What's next, Susan? Stay tuned for Deuteronomy. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.